to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Alex McFarland. Should Christian families have their children in public school? Are the things that kids are learning in the public school classroom ultimately beneficial or detrimental? Hi, Alex McFarland. We've got a great show tonight on Truth and Liberty. So honored that you're watching. We're going to be talking about education because as Abraham Lincoln said, uh, the philosophy in the classroom in one generation is the way of the culture in future generations. And I want to begin with a Bible verse that I want to introduce a very special guest and talk about a lot of things because they relate whether or not you have kids in the classroom. Maybe you do. Maybe you're a parent uh, or maybe you're a grandparent. But all of us have a vested interest in the upcoming generations. And very famously, Proverbs 22.6 in the Word of God, Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, let me lay something out here. We think about that, and we say, oh, train up a child in the ways of God, and it will uh, have long-term impact, maybe if they wander away, but when they're old, they'll come back to it. And it's true, what a child learns in those formative years has long-lasting staying power, impact. But do you know that works uh, two ways? Train up a child in the way he should go, and it will bear fruit uh, years down the road. But if a child is trained up in ways that he shouldn't go, that will stick with him as well. It's very important that we make prayerful godly choices in the way that our kids are educated. And somebody that shares that conviction is our guest tonight, and we're going to take calls. Later on in the program, we'll pick up the phone and we'll take your calls. Maybe you've got questions about education, homeschooling, Christian schooling, uh, what's wrong with America's public schools nowadays. And our guest to talk about this is legitimately an expert. His name is John Stamper. He's got uh, a brand new book that's come out. It's touching many lives, conflicted, pulling back the curtain on public education. We've got a lot to talk about. This week is the big Truth and Liberty Conference in Woodland Park, Colorado. We'll talk about that as well. But without further ado, I want you to meet our very special guest uh, coming to us from middle America. But John Stamper, thank you for being with us tonight on Truth and Liberty. Thank you for having me, Alex. It's uh, my honor to be here. Hi, everybody. Yeah, yes. Well, it's good to have you. Now, uh, your book, um, uh, I want to get to that, but first a little bit about your journey. How did the Lord bring you to where you are in your in your journey of, of service for Christ? Um, well, I grew up in rural Indiana, small town Indiana, the youngest of four siblings. Uh, my dad was an iron worker, mostly in Chicago, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, right around the time I was five, they made the decision uh, to homeschool my siblings and me, so that was very formative in my life. 
Um, I did grow up um, to become a teacher. I taught in public and private schools for 13 years. I did a lot of coaching as well. I coached for 13 years. So that was my career path. I envisioned myself being a teacher and a coach till the day I died. Um, I currently uh, live in Chicago, Illinois with my wife, Jenna. She is an attorney and we are expecting our first child in February of next year. So we're very excited about that. Congratulations. Congratulations. That's uh, you. You know, I think you and I could probably have a whole conversation on just life in Chicago. Probably about a year ago, there was a lot in the news about O'Hare Airport. I've been through O'Hare probably several hundred times, but homeless people uh, taking up residence in there. Um, I, I bring this up because worldview has repercussions, whether it's in the classroom or in the public square, worldview matters. That being said, John, what's what's life in Chicago like these days, and how is the Christian presence there? Well, um, we live in one of the better neighborhoods in Chicago, um, so we don't, you know, wander too far from our home. Uh, we are selling our house currently. It's on the market. Um, it's been on the market for a while, so we're hoping to move out of this city before our uh, little baby comes. Hmm. But um, the the governing, um, the laws, the taxes, um, the the lack of police presence, um, really because they're handcuffed and the crime is just so rampant. It's it's really not a great place to raise a family. Um, hmm. In terms of, I mean, God has people everywhere, but there's sure. certainly not a Christian heritage here in the city, a Christian tradition in the city. Uh, it's very secular. Sure, sure. You know, Chicago, like so many of the, the big cities that have been in the news recently, like, you know, Seattle and Minneapolis and San Francisco and, uh, you know, all through California, and it seems to, you know, be in the more liberal uh, Democrat-run cities. Uh, there, there's just, for lack of a better word, a kind of a lawlessness. And, you know, I, I can say this, John, um, you know, I, I'm a product of public education, but then um, in terms of ministry, I've spoken in a lot of public schools. L let me lay out a scenario, and, and I want to get to your book. But a couple of years ago, I was in Modesto, California, and I was supposed to speak in uh, Glendale and Gilroy and a bunch of California cities. I was on the road for several weeks, and I was doing this public high school assembly on leadership. And while I'm a Christian speaker, it wasn't an overtly Christian thing, but I, I often go in and I've gotten into public schools to speak on maybe the Constitution or, you know, kind of a civics uh, lecture. But this was going to be about leadership, you know, stay clean, hang on to your dreams, get your education. So, uh, before I could even speak, it, it was like this fight broke out. This gymnasium just became this, like like a brawl, you know. And the thing was, the principal, the teachers could not bring the room under control. I mean, you've got like literally out of a thousand students, probably two to 250 were in, you know, fisticuffs fighting. And ultimately, in that one particular school, I've, I never got to speak or do the assembly. It was just like in so many cities, lawlessness. Now, all of that to say this, 
my, my heart goes out to these kids. I mean, how can you get an education when all day long you've basically got to watch your back so you don't get, you know, beaten up or worse? It, it really is a, stat, a, a very sad state of affairs that public education has fallen to, isn't it? Yeah, I would agree. And I think the uh, the easy answer is, you know, when you when you turn away from God, you forsake, you know, the Bible and you can go the other direction. Um, you're not left with any truth. Um, you go further and further down into, you know, darkness and chaos. And, you know, in terms of the public schools, when, when you're teaching generation after generation that, you know, they came from. Um, you know, some piece of bacteria slithered through the mud, turned into a monkey. I mean, there, there's no value of the soul, no value on the human life. Um, what really do you expect? You know, they're going to okay. treat each other um, as such. So when you when you leave the word of God and you leave the righteous path that he has laid out for us, um, you know, you reap what you sow. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I've said it this way. I'm, I'm not being flippant or sarcastic, but, you know, if you if you tell decades and decades of kids, you know, you're nothing but a, a primate. Uh, if you tell kids you're nothing but an ape, eventually they'll begin to act like it. And, and I think we're seeing that all around us. But I want to talk about your book. The title is uh, Conflicted, Pulling Back the Curtain on Public Education. Uh, what, what's the premise of your book, John? Well, the title um, really came from my personal conflict when I was teaching with Chicago Public Schools uh, during the 2020-21 school year. That was the first school year um, with COVID, the first new school year with COVID. Um, I had a conflict that I experienced, and I can go right into the story if you'd like. You can stop me if you want. But um, prior to 2020, I had taught in Indiana, a little bit in Tennessee, uh, for 12 years, and I loved my job. I always had a great job. I loved my principals, colleagues, and it was my dream job. Um, but during COVID, my wife and I decided to move uh, further north in Chicago, and I could no longer keep my job in Indiana, so I had to find another job. I was able to find a job at a reputable school in Chicago Public Schools. Um, but like most other schools in the country in 2020, we started remote. We were virtual. We were not in person. So I hadn't met any of my students and only a, a few colleagues. So during the fall of that 2020 school year, all of the teachers in Chicago had to complete mandatory teacher training. And this is common. This is the case with every public school teacher across the country. Nothing sure. new. And you would have thought that being in this new environment, remote learning, we've never done this before. You would have thought we would have been given you know, helpful strategies, how to manage a virtual classroom, et cetera. But instead, the whole training module was critical race theory, gender theory, how to implement these ideologies into your classroom. So we were being compelled to repeat these marching orders, so to speak, to take these ideologies and then relay them to my five, six-year-old students all the way up through eighth graders I had. So that was the basis for this book. I had an internal conflict as a Christian, um, certainly wasn't going to adopt these policies and then, you know, heap them onto my students. So that was where conflicted came from. And it's true for me, but I know it's true for other teachers. I know it's true for parents across the country and even students. 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, God bless you for for standing strong for your Christian convictions. Um, if you can, what what were some of the the ideologies that you were being you know spoon fed and being instructed to repeat to the students? Sure. So critical race theory um, and gender theory are the big you know umbrella topics, but you know those look different and you know how they're portrayed how they're taught so some of the module titles i'll give you a couple examples um one was intersectionality or intersecting identities this comes from you know the line of thinking of critical race theory so in intersectionality everybody teachers students everybody in society you belong to one of two groups you are either privileged or you're marginalized so some mm. of the privileged identities, um, they are also assigned tactics of abuse. Just by existing, they are abusive. So what are some of these privileged identities? Christians, white men, oh wow, English speakers, if you're able-bodied, if you own a home. So, and then there, there are nine, I believe. Um, yeah. But right off the bat, it was Christians, white men, Homeowners, if you're between 18 and 60 years old, you know, you're abusive, you're threatening, you're intimidating, economically abusive. So, and these were just accusations. And these were not taught as theory. These were presented as fact. We are well, supposed to adjust our behavior based on these principles. So, so there's basically two classes in the world, the, the oppressor and the oppressed, right? Absolutely. A Marxist, it's Marxism 101. And you know, what's interesting is, um, okay, like when, when Charles Darwin wrote uh, On the Origin of Species in 1859, th this was a paradigm to look at life. I mean, either we were created by God or we evolved randomly. And now for a century and a half, um, it's almost like so much of academics has always been seen through the lens of Darwinian evolution, right? I, you know, I'm not going to say I'm afraid, but I'm deeply concerned, John, that CRT will become this lens. People see, see everything, you know, um, government, economics, marriage, family, everything is going to be skewed because people see it through this lens of oppressed and oppressor. Um, am I right? I mean, this is a paradigm that um, tragically could be around for a long, long time. Am I, am I right to be concerned? You're right to be concerned and you're right on the money. Marxism is an atheist ideology. Karl Marx himself said his goal in life was to uh, destroy capitalism and dethrone God. Wow. I mean, that's pretty brazen. And um, to what degree do you feel like Marxism is in America's K-12 public schools today? Well, I think it's very evident. But the thing is, oftentimes it goes unchecked because I feel like a lot of people, especially parents or teachers, don't know what they're looking at. They're looking right at it without realizing that this is a Marxist idea. This is a Marxist practice like the undermining of parents so when schools have secrecy policies where they transition a student to you know from a boy to a girl quote unquote transition 
that they hide it from the parents. So you have this wedge, this ideological wedge being driven between children and their parents. That's a Marxist tactic. It came straight from the intersectionality graphic that I showed you. If you're of a certain age, an adult parent, you're abusive, right? You're oppressive. You're using those young people, those children, just to gain more power. So this comes from the Marxist ideology. And that's just one example. We have all of the racial issues as well. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And uh, before we go much farther, folks, this is a book. Uh, if you have children, I beg of you to read this book. But even if you don't have school-aged children, just to know what's going on in our nation and to realize that we are in a battle of ideas. We're very much in a, a, a war of world views, conflicted and uh, pulling back the curtain on public education. John Stamper, you're the author. Where can people find the book? People can find it on Amazon, and you can also find it on masterbooks.com backslash conflicted. Masterbooks.com backslash conflicted. How about yourself? Do you have a website? Uh, you can find my uh, homeschooling courses through masterbooksacademy.com. I uh, also find my book on that same website. I also host a podcast you can spot you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts called The State of State Schools. Right. Uh, we'll we'll circle back to this uh, a, a time or two. But uh, what what's the answer? I, I think a lot of parents and concerned grown-ups probably get it that things are not uh, right. All is not well with our public schools. But um and like I said, we'll come back to this, but what, what's the solution? What, what do you propose? What would you like to see people do? Well, the, the simple answer to a complicated problem is parents, once again, need to assume the role as the primary educator. You know, God gave the children to those parents for a reason. And, you know, the, the public education model is relatively new, you know, over the timeline of human history. So, uh, that's the experimental method is the public education system. Um, man has been learning from their parents, their grandparents for all of human history. And that's the, sure. you know, the model that God laid out. He, he said in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, you know, the commandments, which I give you this day, I'll write them on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. When you wake up, when you go to bed, when you're inside, when you're outside. So it should go from God to the parents, to the children. And that, that flows in one direction. It comes from God to the parent, to the child. So in general, when parents hand over that responsibility to, you know, the government school system, they're kind of, you know, giving over, you might, you touched on it earlier. Um, someone's raising your children, whether it's the parents, their peers, you know, the public school system, um, you know, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. That, that goes in both directions. You know, that goes God's way and it goes the world's way too, so. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there, there are the spiritual implications. I mean, think about this, folks. Um, there's, you know, th these questions, is my child learning how to read? Because, you know, they say when a child is a strong reader, he can almost guarantee to do well in, in any subject. There's, you know, math and reading and um, just the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, 
basic sciences and liberal arts. But then there's American history. I mean, besides the spiritual implications, there's what are kids being taught about America? Uh, John, we've done a lot of shows and uh, I've talked to kids. In fact, we had 1,250 teens in seven summer camps this summer. And oh man, have I got stories. Uh, but it, the, one, one child said, uh, and I was in Temple, Georgia, and this middle schooler said, it's almost like we're being told to hate America. This is a middle schooler saying this. I mean, they, they get it that there's this ideology being pushed. It says we're, we're almost being taught to hate America. And uh, yeah. now I've got to say, it's, it's just self-destructive what these kids, generations of kids are being taught. Yeah, it is. And really, that touches on revisionism, you know, changing the country's history. Oh, like yeah. I talk about my book in chapter eight, um, throughout the 20th century, during the rise of communism, all of those major governments, you know, from the USSR, Nazi Germany, Mao's communist China, they all use revisionism, they change their country's history, you know, in order to implement that communist ideology. So there's nothing new under the sun. You know, this is this is nothing new. We're not just inventing this now. You know, this playbook has been used before. Sure. Do, do you feel like the, the current state of, of public education and what's being taught to kids in the classroom, do, does it jeopardize uh, the future of our constitutional America? Well, I think so. You, you mentioned the Abraham Lincoln quote, um, you know, what kids are taught in the classroom in the one generation becomes you know, the culture in the next. So absolutely. Um, but, you know, while it, you know, it's the public education system is not doing well and it's not the answer. Um, there's still hope. If you're a believer, you know, there's always hope and, Amen. you know, God has a way out of every situation, but the point is we need to seek him individually as a family and as a nation, uh, you know, anything can be turned around, but, it's all about sure. going back to God and, you know, finding the old ways, the old paths. Amen. Amen. And, you know, what? I was reading Exodus 13, which uh, it, it says, you know, when it comes to pass that your son will ask you, why do you, why do we do these things? And you will say that when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, God with a strong hand delivered us from Egypt. Um, here's the thing. Um, the Bible presupposes that the parent owns their faith and it's real and it's solidly in, inculcated into the life of the parent so that the parent is capable of explaining to the, the son or the daughter and passing it on. Do you feel like there's an opportunity? I'm going to lay this out and I want you to respond. So homeschooling, and maybe the parent says, well, that's pretty daunting. I, I'm just not sure if I'm capable of that. But the parent prepares, drill, drills down deeply, and in, in prepping to teach and homeschool, maybe the parent gets a solid grasp on some truths that they needed to revisit themselves. Maybe do a little remedial work and uh, get a solid grasp on God and country themselves as they prepare to teach their kids. I mean, that could be a win-win situation, right? Right. And I can I can speak to that just from my own personal experience on two levels, you know, in my relationship with God and then just professionally as a teacher for 13 years, I can say firsthand that, 
when I didn't know a subject as well as I should have, I had to teach it to myself. I had to relearn those things before I taught it to my students or going through the act of teaching. I really uh, relearned a lot. So there's that. And then spiritually with God, I mean, God is never done with us. You know, he's always trying to teach us something. We can always get closer to God and learn more from God. His word is inexhaustible. And that was the case with my parents uh, when they decided to homeschool my siblings and me. Like I mentioned, my dad was an iron worker and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. At that time, they both had a high school education. That was it. So they felt unqualified. They were, you know, intimidated at, you know, the thought of homeschooling four young kids. So you're not the only one. Um, you're not alone, but you can do it. You know, you can do all things, especially through Christ. Amen. Well, and really, in, in a way, isn't this almost the golden age of home education? Because there's so many affinity groups. We've talked to them. We've interviewed them. There are homeschool co-op groups. There's wor literally world-class curriculum in every yeah. subject under the sun. And I'm, I'm just going to say this. I've spoken to many college recruiters, some Christians, some not. And look, I mean, it's in, in large measure, the homeschool kids that, that are ready and they know what study and discipline is, and they're the ones that come to college, if they do go to college, well, educated. The fruits speak yeah. for themselves. Yeah, and I mentioned this in my book, but you take any metric, math scores, reading, science, public speaking, community service, um, homeschoolers outperform their private school, public school peers by every metric. So oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's just understood. Um, and homeschooling is on the rise for sure. And, you know, technology has never been as advanced as it is now. There are plenty of issues and, you know, problems, but there are plenty of solutions to those problems. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, in my book, I hope to encourage parents first warn you of what's going on, sound an alarm, but I don't want to leave you there. I want to encourage parents, um, you know, to seek God, trust him and step out in faith, you know, follow his leading on your life because you can do it. It is possible. Sure. Having to give the number folks, write this number down. If you would, 719-619-2341. 719-619-2341. When we come back, we're going to talk with John about some of the common questions and issues, how you can get started. Uh, and his book is, is Conflicted, Pulling Back the Curtain on Public Education. Um, let me ask you this, John. In what ways can churches be involved? Can, can churches somehow help and encourage on how kids are getting educated? Absolutely. This is something that I've learned about relatively recently, but churches can start education scholarship programs. It's basically just like giving tithes, um, but churches can help financially support families who might need a little financial support uh, to either provide homeschooling for their child or send their child to a Christian school. And then you have the church building itself and the congregation. You know, the church building could become a co-op home and members of the congregation you know, could share the responsibility of teaching. So that is one solution to a lot of different problems that parents might have. Uh, uh, what is a homeschool co-op? I hear that term a lot, and, and I have to confess, John, I don't exactly know what it means. It's, it's a group of families within a community who basically act like a micro school. They probably share 
the same curriculum, typically a Christian curriculum. Um, so there is some um, symmetry, synergy, some agreement on what's being taught, but responsibilities of teaching might be shared uh, based on, you know, what teacher has what strength, but it's just, it's a group of homeschool families that support each other and help each other. Wow, that's great. Hey, we've got a break coming up in just a little bit. Alex McFarland here along with John Stamper. We're talking about the state of education because it impacts the minds, the souls, the decisions, the future of youth, but ultimately the future of our country. We're going to go to calls and more on this edition of Truth and Liberty. Stay tuned because we're back after this. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. created with a purpose, written in the heart of God, long before you were born. He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we have big plans to make a big impact. If you want to be a part of turning our nation back to God, I want to invite you to become a supporter of Truth and Liberty. You can go on our website at truthandliberty.net to the donate page and make a gift there. And you can also sign up to be uh, make a recurring automatic gift of $5 or more per month, and then you'll become a Truth and Liberty member. And uh, our gifts to Truth and Liberty are not tax deductible, but I promise you, God sees your generosity. So go to Truth and Liberty and become a member today. Welcome back to Truth and Liberty. Alex McFarland here. Hey, before we resume our conversation with John Stamper and we pick up the phones for your calls, I want to remind everybody about Truth and Liberty. I'm so excited this upcoming weekend, and there is time to make plans and Come to Woodland Park and join us for the Truth and Liberty Conference. It's September 7 through 9. I have the privilege, I'll be speaking, Richard Harris, Andrew Womack, David Barton, Chad Connolly, uh, so many great speakers. Go to the website, which is truthandliberty.net, truthandliberty.net. Now, I, I say this all the time because I do a lot of traveling. Karis Bible College, the incredible world-class campus of Karis and Woodland Park. For one thing, it's part of the most beautiful scenery you'll see anywhere in our country. You'll see deer. You'll see the majestic mountains of Colorado. You'll see Pikes Peak. It is stunningly beautiful, but it's just super easy to get to. You could drive to Woodland Park. It's on Highway 24. You could fly to Colorado Springs, about a 45-minute drive, or if you fly into Denver. Denver is a little over an hour, but it's easy to get to. Folks, think about coming to the Truth and Liberty Conference. I would love to meet you. There are going to be over 40 partner ministries like wall builders and so many affinity groups, and this is what we've got to do. We've got to build bridges and network 
and pray together and get equipped and be inspired and be mobilized to stand for God and country. And so go to the website, truthandliberty.net. You can learn all the information. But also, let me just say this, folks, as we're giving out a lot of information tonight. Truth and Liberty, this show and the website is, is putting out information that's touching so many lives. Just in the last week, I give God the glory. But I've had two articles published by townhall.com. And I had one over the weekend published by AmericanThinker.com. And so those are going to be posted on the website. So subscribe, truthandliberty.net slash subscribe. And all of the content from Andrew and Richard Harris and myself and Pastor Dwayne Sheriff and all of the personalities that we have the privilege of speaking and writing. Look, we're excited about truth. We want lives to be equipped, and we encourage you to participate and tell others as well. Well, the number is 719-619-2341. If you've got a question, 719-619-2341. Our guest, John Stamper. John, before we pick up the phone and talk with uh, listeners, tell us again your book title, your own website, and where people can find the book. Sure. Johnny, Thank you. you. My book is called yeah. Conflicted, Pulling Back the Curtain on Public Education. You can find that on Amazon or on masterbooks.com backslash conflicted. Uh, you can also find my homeschool courses through the masterbooksacademy.com. And you can find my podcast, The State of State Schools on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Amen. Well, there's a lot in that title that I want to unpack, but I want to go to our first caller in uh, New Jersey. Uh, Rocco, thanks for holding. And Rocco from New Jersey, uh, you're on Truth and Liberty. Welcome. Hi, Alex. How are you? Good. Thanks for listening. So my question is, could you elaborate on the corroborative evidence regarding Jesus in the New Testament? Great question, great question. Um, and John, you feel free to weigh in on this. You know, in a way, this is a little bit of an apologetics question, but it's an exciting question. And I'm going to mention a book, uh, Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. And he's only one author that I could mention. Gary Habermas is a great, respected scholar. He wrote a book several years ago called The Historical Jesus Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ. It's published by a publisher in Missouri called College Press. Now, there have been some others. I, I could name a, a, a scholar, Mike Lycona, great author who collaborated on a number of books, one called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. But here, Rocco, here's what's so exciting. We've got the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they give biographies of Jesus. What's important about what the New Testament is, is they were written by eyewitnesses. Now, uh, we can absolutely trust the New Testament because it's God's Word. It was written by eyewitnesses, historically accurate. Um, scholars like one of the greatest historians who ever lived, Will Durant, became a Christian my mentor in graduate school, Norm Geisler, knew Will Durant. Uh, Will Durant said that the New Testament is 
probably the most historically accurate document from the ancient world. So in no way do we really need to look elsewhere for information about Jesus, but the New Testament, because it's accurate and many scholars have recognized it as such. But even beyond that, what Habermas documents in Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ are sources that no historian would, would question, like uh, Pliny and Trajan and Emperor Hadrian. And from the first two centuries, um, Roman, Greek, and Jewish scholars, now hang with me, folks, I know this is a lot, this is really, really exciting. Uh, Jewish, Greek, and Roman sources reference a man named Jesus, claimed to be the Son of God, was crucified at Passover by the Romans, rose from the dead. Uh, this is interesting, too. Jesus' followers taught that he was God. Jesus' followers got up early before daybreak on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, would worship and would sing hymns to Christ as God. Now, why is this important? And in fact, there's uh, one scholar named James Dunn who documents, folks, this is amazing. Brace yourself. Grab a stationary object. The church worshiping Jewish believers getting together, saying Jesus is the Son of God, rose from the dead, through faith in Christ, we're saved, and they're, they're calling him deity. This is within about four to six weeks after the cross. Now, this is so significant. Why? Because 20 years ago, uh, the uh, Da Vinci Code uh, by um, Brown, Dan Brown, they were saying, well, Jesus being the Savior, that was, quote, invented 400 years after the life of Christ. No, not four centuries. We're talking four weeks after the life of Christ. Now, skeptics, and I've debated dozens of atheists, and they'll say, well, the, the New Testament was corrupted. The New Testament was altered and changed. Both atheists and Islamic scholars will say that. And the idea that Jesus was the one and only risen Son of God, that was just fabricated centuries after Jesus lived. No. I mean, think about this, folks. Um, the ancient evidence, besides the New Testament, which were written from 40 to 60 AD, but then you've got Jewish, Greek, and Roman sources, then early Christian sources, those hostile to the church, those that were friendly to the church, within four to six weeks after the resurrection, we're saying, here's what the gospel is, death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is important because I can accurately remember things from four weeks ago, and all of us could. So here's what I'm saying, Raka. The, the story of Jesus that is he, the Son of God, was crucified on the cross, paid our sin debt, rose again, that validates who he was and what he taught, the man, the message, and we put our faith in that. 
It's, it's real. It's been preserved. It's trustworthy. One last thing. And John, forgive me for going off on a tangent, but I love this subject. There is uh, Josephus. Now, Josephus wrote, and his writings came to be known as the Antiquities of the Jews. And a lot of what we know about, for instance, where Herod's palace was, Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, right? Well, that was over by the Dead Sea. And Josephus tells us that Herod built this big military fortress. And Josephus has been hugely recognized as an absolutely trustworthy scholar. Now, folks, hang with me. Josephus mentions there was a man named Jesus, a miracle worker. He was said to be the Son of God, died and rose again. He was the Messiah. It's amazing. Well, I was just talking two weeks ago to a friend of mine who knew Louis Feldman. Now, why is this important? Okay, Louis Feldman was a Jewish scholar, and even Wikipedia says he was the greatest Josephus scholar. And atheists will say, oh, Josephus mentions Jesus, but that's not real. That was put in there by Christians because it's such a clear documentation of Jesus and the fact that he was the Messiah. And so atheists and skeptics, they'll say, oh, well, the Josephus references to Jesus aren't real. That's not what Louis Feldman said. Louis Feldman was Jewish, a historian, said to be the greatest of all Josephus scholars. And even Louis Feldman said the, the Jesus references in Josephus were authentic. Here's what I'm saying. By the word of God and secular history itself, we read about the Messiah who died and rose again. That's Jesus. Now, John, I apologize. I went off on a 10-minute rant, but uh, chime in on this if you would. How credible do you believe the New Testament is, John? No, no need to apologize at all. Good question and great answer. Um, I really like to hear that, you know, even, even non-believers can affirm that Christ is who he said he was, but you know, my dad always points out, and I love to point out that just look at the lives that have been changed, um, you know, through salvation, through Christ Jesus, you know, the drunkards delivered, um, you know, demon possessed, ca demons cast out, and just the lives throughout time that have been touched by the gospel of Christ is, uh, you know, a great testimony, if not the best Amen. testimony. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, that was a great defender of Christianity. C.S. Lewis lived 1898 to 1963. And C.S. Lewis said this, he said, if Jesus hadn't lived, if Jesus were a myth, then we've got an even bigger enigma, which is the conversion of the world by uh, a fairy tale, uh, which we know is not true. Jesus really, really lived. And uh, like you say, for centuries, lives have been changed and are being changed this very day. Rocco, thanks so much. By the way, um, not to change the subject here, but um, I've got a brand new book that releases today on 100 Bible questions and answers for families. And if you search my name, I, I, it's been my joy to write 
quite a number of books on this ancient evidence for the life of Christ. But uh, John, I want to go back to questions for you. The number, by the way, folks, is 719-619-2341, 719-619-2341, if you've got a question. Uh, John, here's a, a, an online question. How do the teachers' unions affect behavior of, of the classroom? Uh, how do the unions affect the classroom behavior of the teachers? Um, could you speak to that, how the teachers' unions have impacted the state of public education? Sure. Um, I think there's a number of ways, um, no particular order. First of all, teachers' unions have a lot of sway in elections for government officials, presidents, state governors, etc. Second of all, uh, teachers unions have conferences like the teachers trainings that I've discussed earlier, the ones that I went through. Uh, teachers unions conduct the same types of trainings. So they pass along their new policies, their ideologies to these teachers who then take them into the classroom. And that's where students adopt these policies. Uh, for example, um, teachers unions, schools, even state agencies can adopt policies like, let's say, um, you know, the bathroom, the transgender bathroom policy. They can adopt policies from activist groups like mm. uh, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, Gender yeah. Spectrum, groups like this who are activist groups. They're out to promote uh, an agenda. Well, unions, teachers unions, state agencies, they're adopting these policies as their own. Right, and they're being trickled yeah. down into the classroom to your to your children to students. Uh, so there's a number of ways that the teachers unions, and I'm thinking mostly of you know the NEA and the AFT, the two largest teachers unions in America. Um, they're the biggest ones, but there's a number of ways that these ideologies uh, trickle down, and it's usually you know through the back door behind the proverbial curtain where parents don't know what's going on. Well, you know, and I've been hearing about this for a lot of years, John, of how, you know, activist groups, uh, climate activists, gay, lesbian, transgender activists, they, they seem to always get the ear of the administrators. So I have a twofold question, if, if I could. Why do the school administrators, the principals, the superintendents always seem so quick to just you know, bow down and do whatever the gay, lesbian, liberal, Marxist, socialist activists do. And then the, the second question, well, we'll answer that, and I've got a follow-up. Why do the administrators just instantaneously seem to want to roll over and do whatever the, the lobbyists say? Sure. Well, I certainly don't want to, you know, generalize and throw every administrator, you know, in the same category, because there are godly Christian administrators out there doing their best. But I think generally when people do give in so easily to, you know, these radical godless ideologies, it's mostly because they have no foundation. They're not rooted in the word of God, you know, and whatever political breeze is blowing left or right, they're going to go with it. So when you, like I mentioned earlier, when you leave God, you leave the word of God, which we're, we have been doing as a country for a long time, um, you know, what's the alternative? You forsake truth, you have no objective truth, right? Now every student has their own truth, which isn't wow. logical. So 
long story short, when you forsake the way of God and you turn to the world system, you know, you're going to slide deeper down into confusion, into spiritual darkness. And like I said, if you don't have that firm foundation, you know, of God's truth, you know, you're going to blow with the political winds. Do you think Christians could ever form um, lobbying groups and successfully, respectfully, but successfully get the ear of the administrators? Uh, I think Christians absolutely can affect the culture. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that we should be affecting the culture of America. Um, I think just generally in our society, and this is just my personal opinion, is we kind of associate Christianity with like being passive, being passive, you know, being right. a nice guy and not um, being willing to being called names or, you know, persecuted. I mean, Jesus said the world hated me. They're going to hate you. It's kind right. of goes with the deal of being a, a Christian, a follower of Christ. So I think um, from my perspective, Christians, we need to be courageous and first of all, hear from God, right? believe yeah. what he says, hold to those convictions, and then be courageous, you know, in the face of whatever trial you're going through. And everyone has their own unique trial. Right. Um, if, if a Christian group got an audience with, say, a school superintendent or a, you know, school board, um, what, what should they ask for? I mean, if, or, or should Christians focus their energy and their time on homeschooling, private schooling, and and not really engage with the public school, uh, you know, landscape. Um, what, what do you think? Well, I think you can do both. First of all, I think homeschooling your children with a biblical worldview is priority number one. Uh, and once you do that and you're discipling your own children, I think you can certainly, you know, advocate for your community and what your neighbors are learning and what your children are learning. But really what I think it comes down to is, truth. I mean, we're at a point now, whereas a society, we can't even agree on boy and girl. What does that oh, mean? We, it's crazy. What is a boy and a girl? We can't even agree on that. We have lost so many shared values that we once had. And if we can't even agree on basic truth, you know, you know, we're dealing, we're, we're trying to work within the world's system, you know, the world that is rejecting God. We're trying to work within that system. So it's an uphill battle for sure. But again, start by discipling your own children uh, as God leads you. And then I think you absolutely can, you know, speak up at school board meetings. You can create Christian activist groups that proclaim the word of God. But again, even those groups, you need to be led by the Lord and not, you know, act out of presumption, you know, because yeah, speaking sure. from experience, being, being a zealous Christian, you know, I want to go do things and I often make matters worse because I'm acting out of presumption and not following the, you know, God's guidance. So we all have a responsibility to, you know, obey the Lord. Amen. Well said, brother, and pray. Uh, we're going to go to Donna in Texas. Donna, thanks for holding. And I want to say thank you for being a Truth and Liberty partner and a, a Andrew Womack Ministries partner. Folks, if you go to truthandliberty.net slash donate, and uh, commit to being a monthly giver you of at least $5. You're a partner with us, and you're helping us inform and equip and make an impact for Christ. Donna, thank you, and thank you for you're calling welcome. in. Um, I kind of have a, a, a comment 
maybe you guys can elaborate on it. It didn't really fit in the question area he had to say there, but um, there's probably thousands of school teachers, public school teachers in America, I, I'm guessing. Um, it amazes me. I don't know how it could happen that so many of them all of a sudden just go with the program being they're being told to give. I mean, to teach, you know, I don't think all of them were atheists before this happened. You know, they may not have been Christians or anything, but I'm sure some of them were good people and know the truth. And so, like, how could so many just go with the teaching that the worldview once taught? I don't understand that. I don't know if that made sense. (laughs) It's a good question. John, what do you say? No, it actually it absolutely makes sense. And you're right. There are born again believers, Christians that are in the school systems, teaching principals, administrators. They're all over, you know, in every state and every city, there's a believer. Um, and, you know, speaking from my own experience, I'm not trying to, you know, cast blame on anybody or, you know, make judgment on anybody. But from my experience, um, there could be a number of things. Maybe they're afraid to speak up for fear of losing their job. Um, these changes often happen slowly and over time. So like I mentioned earlier, sometimes you'll be looking at a policy or a school practice or a, a training program and not realize what you're looking at. Like maybe it's a Marxist you know, concept or a communist concept. Um, I mean, take our, our sex ed curriculum in public schools. You trace the history back to that, you know, all the way back to Alfred Kinsey. What a perverted corrupt system, um, um, I'll use system or curriculum for lack of better words, you know, so we often don't realize what we're looking at. Um, even as a Christian, I didn't realize these things, you know, for a long time. So I think it's a combination of things and there's no one big sweeping, uh, fix or clear answer. But, uh, I think the big thing that we're seeing now in, across the country with teachers is they're afraid of losing their jobs. They don't want to speak up and speak out because, we have seen teachers fired for Christian teachers fired for not wanting to implement gender policy in the classroom, for example. Yeah, uh, Donna, that's a great question. And, you know, the sad thing about it is, uh, and I know, John, I've had these conversations with people. Uh, very often it's get on board with the ideology or you'll lose your job. And that's why, look, within the church, uh, we need to be that community that hangs together. I, I really think as the world drifts farther and farther away, I mean, apart from a great move of God's Holy Spirit, which could happen, the Lord can send a great revival, and maybe we are in the beginning stages of a great awakening. But but Christians need to understand that uh not only do we believe in Jesus as our Savior, Christians live morally. Christians live righteously. Christians obey the Word of God. Christians uh, live within their means. And John, history shows that generally the church rises to the top because, as one writer said, it's just a better way to live. Now, what does that mean? Well, if teachers do get fired, maybe they can uh, find a landing place within the community of believers. Look, I know a a church right now. uh, In fact, I'll just tell you folks, and then I'm going to throw back to you, John. 
Buffalo Presbyterian Church, 275-year-old church in North Carolina, very historic. It was a dying church. Uh, about five years ago, it was a church just of a few elderly people. Well, during COVID, just three years ago, they said, you know what, we're going to start a school. We've got an empty classroom building. Uh, kids all around need direction. Well, for one thing, they're building a world-class school with great education, and they didn't have a lot of money to start, but it has revitalized that church, and people are coming to worship there, to join in. People that necessarily weren't education activists, they recognized that the deplorable state of public education is part of the problem, and, and I'd love to see this happen all over America as, as so many local churches need a shot of adrenaline, I think getting involved in educating young people and passing a biblical worldview onto upcoming Americans, I mean, that, that's a vision and something exciting that can, can revolutionize a, a struggling church. What do you say, John? Um, well, I lost my train of thought. Um, what I can say is <laughs> just speaking from experience, I mean, with my book, here I go with my book, what I was trying to do was just share information as a Christian teacher, share information with parents and teachers, you know, and, and I can give you my opinions and suggestions, but in terms of what parents should do specifically or what teachers should do with their careers, you're going to have to go to the Lord directly for those answers. But, you know, if, if you've lived for the Lord for any number of time or any amount of time, certainly he's come through for you and he's not let you down. Amen. If you haven't lived for the Lord long, maybe you're a new Christian. What an opportunity to learn from him that he will provide and meet every need. Maybe that's what he's trying to teach you. And I'm not trying to diminish your difficulty, diminish the seriousness of your situation, Leaving hey, hey, forgive me. Hold that thought, John. We got a break. Folks, this is Truth and Liberty. More questions on the state of education after this. Don't go away. This is a godly nation. It was founded upon godly principles. God is calling us to rebuild his house so that he can manifest his glory in the midst of a corrupt and pagan world. I would argue that America has been more prosperous, more successful than any other nation because we've done more in reading and applying the Bible. It is the history for Christians to speak out and to make a difference in this nation. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. It's not enough to know what God's will is, but you have to learn how to do things God's way. Now, because of the new man on the inside of me, because of the cross, I can daily deny self. And if you don't learn to do that, you're not gonna fulfill all God's will for your life. You know, you don't find the beginning of God until you get to the end of yourself.
Truth and Liberty is back. Alex McFarland here talking with John Stamper, our guest. He's the author of Conflicted, Pulling Back the Curtain on Public Education, published by Master Books. And uh, John, I want to commend you uh, for, in this conversation, you clearly know your subject matter, but you, you repeatedly throw back to hearing from the Lord and praying and being led by Jesus Christ. And that's so refreshing. Um, I meet a lot of scholars and a lot of leaders, and you clearly have your eyes on the Lord Jesus, and I really applaud you for that, John. Well, I appreciate that, Alex. Uh, you know, certainly knowing myself, you know, I know how many times I failed. I failed more times than I know. Um, so I just, uh, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. I want to, I want to walk after, you know, the Holy Spirit. And it's, like everyone else out there, we're not going to do it perfectly, but you know, that's my intent for sure. So I really appreciate that. It's a great compliment. Well, folks, if you've got a question for John or myself about education or biblical worldview, the number for questions, it's 719-619-2341. And uh, John, here's a question online. Um, It says, who should establish classroom curriculum? What do you say about that? I'm assuming the caller means from in the public school. Who should establish that curriculum? Well, if we're talking about the public school system, um, my opinion is it should be as small as possible and start as local as possible, meaning from the home to the school, to the community, the region, and then the state. So it should start as local and as small as possible. So with the parents. Now, what would that look like? Currently in our public school system, we really don't have that model. Uh, so if so I give suggestions in my in my book, but if you are in the public school system this year and you're going to be in the future for whatever reason, you know my suggestion is homeschool. But if you're in the public school system, I have some suggestions, um, things that you can do to kind of stay on top of, you know, stay on top of things and know what's coming down the pipeline. So one is become a part of your school's textbook and curriculum adoption process. Normally that's done every school year by a group of teachers. Parents are rarely, if ever, involved in that. But if parents were involved in that, they could at least know what textbooks are coming into the classrooms. Best case scenario, they'll have input on what does come in and what does not come in. Uh, Another thing that you can do in terms of shaping curriculum is know about the school's special programs. There's special weeks in school. There's the special speakers, for example, in schools all over the country, but in Chicago public schools in June, they celebrated pride week. And it was really pride month. Yeah. Flags across the school, decorations in the hallway. Students are getting bracelets. They're drawing pictures. We're having assemblies. They're signing up to become allies in the hallway. Kids get excited about this stuff because they're getting out of social studies to go, you know, to the gym for an assembly. They get yeah, really excited yeah. about this special program. So that's one way that schools can get their hooks into kids and get a hold of their minds, right? Um, yeah. And then the special speakers. You'll see some schools are now publishing, uh, you know, their list of special speakers and special weeks throughout the year. Uh, so those are just a couple of things that you can do if you're in the public school system to have, you know, have some say on what's being taught in the schools. 
Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel, and, and I want to talk about homeschooling and how to get started. And folks, if you've got a question on that, you can call and ask John or myself. But um, do you think that a lot of parents feel like in order to succeed, kids need the environment of public education and they need um, just the culture? And I mean, where our culture is, is a subject unto itself. But uh, do you feel like, you know, public education and then secular college, parents see that as, you know, absolutely critical to a child's ability to succeed in life? Yeah, that's the most common thing I hear from parents when I talk about homeschooling or the idea of homeschooling is they're afraid because they want their kids to have social lives, you know, make friends. They're afraid that if they homeschool their students, that they won't, you know, be socially developed. And I think what they really mean is they want their kids to have friends and make memories, you know, be on a sports team, go to prom, things like that. But look at the society, look at the culture. So what you're doing, what you're really saying is you're going to give over an immature kid. Sorry, I got the fire hydrant going by me. Perks of living in Chicago. All right. That's, a, that's all so right. The, the alternative is you send an immature child into a school with other immature children and they're socializing each other. So that doesn't really make much sense to me, you know, as a Christian and a soon to be parent. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, when it comes to instruction, it should flow downward from God to the parents to the child. From my perspective, uh, the parents should first socialize the children and then the children will know how to properly socialize, you know, after yeah. that don't know what healthy socialization looks like. Well, you, you know what, um, talking about what churches can do, I don't know if you heard folks, but like maybe 15 minutes ago, we had a big noise in the hallway behind me. That's because the church that allows me to have a studio here, they've got an after-school program and they have activities and they have literacy and they give some snack. And there are like 500 teenagers that come to this church and they're getting, they're getting the gospel, the best thing of all, and biblical worldview. That's just another example how uh, churches can be involved. But you mentioned one of the realities of life in Chicago, hearing a fire truck go by, one of the realities of having this show in a very community-minded church is that wonderful sound of teenagers out back. But um, I'm going to go to another question here says that in the public school, they're, quote, really pushing transgenderism. What do they have to gain? It's so destructive. How can this help the left? Uh, John, what do you think is behind this push, this ideology? Well, a lot of different things. Um, one direct outcome that I've touched on earlier is the wedge that it's driving between parents and children. Um, there are a lot of con you know, concerns over this topic, but one of them is the divide between parents and children with secrecy policies. Now states and schools are you know, implementing notification policies where parents will be notified if their child requests you know, a new gender or new name in school. They're not asking permission. They're just going to notify you that we're doing this. So mm -hmm. there is a divide, you know, an intentional divide between parents and children. Um, and then with, you know, the, the concept of transgenderism, 
I mean, that, that's very complicated. I go back to, you know, Alfred Kinsey and John Money. If you ever yeah. heard of John Money, uh, John Money based all of his studies off of Alfred Kinsey and, you know, the, the sexual experiments that, you know, they did on infants and children, uh, just terrible. And, you know, they believe that, you know, it was society's reaction to, you know, sexual abuse and sexual crimes. It was the reaction that was the real problem. People like that sort of thing. You know, being raped is not really a problem. It's society's reaction. So these ideologies are sick from, from the beginning, you know, they and really that's are. formed. It's shaped so much of our, like I mentioned, the sex ed curriculum, but that touches on, you know, the transgenderism. John Money um, was very prominent in kind of starting off this whole transgender movement in America. So go look up John Money and, you know, the case of the Reimer twins, the two twin boys. Um, it's very sad. An and of, as but, you know, all, all of this, this sexual deviancy and the promotion of sexual you know, aberration and just immorality, uh, all of that came out of a Darwinian worldview, a, a worldview that said there was not God and there is no ultimate moral code. We just evolved. And so relativism, right and wrong, is whatever we make it up to be. I mean, all of this that is harming people and is so unspeakably evil it comes out of a worldview that rejects God from the beginning, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's really, that's what Satan wants. You know, he wants to steal, kill and destroy, and he's gonna, he's gonna corrupt the word, but you know, how Satan, Satan works. It's subtle. It's not always right in your face, clear as day. It's real subtle. He'll use yeah. scripture and he'll twist it. So that's why going back to the previous question, it's like, how can so many people go along with this? Even Christian teachers who are well-meaning, how can they go along with these ideologies that are so clearly wrong? Well, it's so subtle. You know, we're all, you know, subject to that deception. Um, so we have to be diligent as, as Christians, certainly in our profession as teachers and whatnot, but as Christians, we have to be so diligent and be in prayer daily and in the word of God daily to really just stay sharp and you know you know people always talk about or there's a scripture that says that the holy spirit will bring things to your memory right and at yeah. the time don't worry about what to say the holy spirit will give you the words well first of all those things have to be in your mind for the holy spirit to bring them back to your memory so sure it's so important to pray and read the word of god on, on a regular basis so yeah it's so it's a difficult where, where do you where do you recommend families start um and is, is there an ideal age? Is it, is it first grade? What if a parent says, well, you know, my child is already in fifth grade. I mean, it's too late. We should have started in first grade. So no, uh, John, how do they start and what's the optimum time to start? So um, I'll talk about logistics first. If you are considering homeschooling, but you don't know where to start, I'll give you a website um, that's a great place to start. It, it covers all of the kind of legal questions that you might have, because every state is different. Uh, homeschooling laws and rules are different in every state, which is good. And it's kind of a, you know, pain, but it's a good thing. So the website is hslda.org. That, that stands for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, I believe. hslda.org. So you can start there and you can find information on your state. Now, 
my suggestion is the way I was homeschooled, which I really liked, I can just speak from my personal experience is I was started right away, pre-K through elementary school. Now, my siblings and I did eventually go back to public schools. This was in the 90s. We wanted to play sports. And after six, seven years of homeschooling, my parents felt that they had given us the biblical foundation that they wanted. And we kind of went back to public schools basically on like a trial basis, you know, um, kind of as much freedom as we could handle. But um, I think the formative years, those younger years are the most important. Uh, so definitely start right away. I think no one knows your kids more than you do. So no one, no one can relate to them as well as you can as a parent. Do, do parents have the right? I mean, is, you know, I can't believe I'm asking this in America, but uh, is homeschooling legal, quote unquote, across America? Homeschooling is legal. Um, as early as, or as recent as the 80s, 1980s, it was not legal in all 50 states. Uh, if you know Israel Wayne, uh, he's a prominent author, a guy I really look up to, but uh, he was homeschooled while it was illegal. Um, his mother was very courageous and bold and homeschooled their children and while it was illegal. So, you know, real uh, trailblazers. That was back in the 70s. But yeah, it is legal now. Okay. Wow. Um, any uh, places you can recommend or does your book address curriculum where to find, how to choose good curriculum and where, where to get it? Uh, for curriculum, the same website I gave uh, should have recommendations on curriculum. I would recommend, of course, Masterbooks. Um, I work with Masterbooks. They're a Christian curriculum. Um, I would recommend them or a, a classical Christian curriculum, you know, where you focus on the classic literature, um, mathematics, Can you say science. that name again? Uh, master books? No, the other one that you mentioned. Uh, classic, classic homeschool curriculum is just a, a style. It's not necessarily okay. um, a, a brand. Yeah. Um, but you can search classical Christian education. That just, it's really what education was before the public school system trend, right? Before modern education. Sure. It's what our founding fathers studied. Um, so I think going back to that with, you know, an emphasis on Christianity would be a great option. Uh, what, what is classical education? Well, so this is um, kind of a trend, classic or an upcoming trend, and I think it's important that it is. Classical education, like I said, was what education was before modern education. It, it focuses on truth, right? Whether it's in mathematics, whether it's in history or sciences, truth, beauty. Christian classical education, you know, involves um, Christian principles, right, of faith, hope, love. But um, really, in a proper Christian classical education, everything will point back to God. If you're searching for truth, one way or another, you're going to come back to God as creator. And that goes for math, that goes for the sciences, it goes for art, it goes for physical education, right? So that's, in my opinion, that's the kind of education like Deuteronomy talks about right? Where we can talk to our children day and night about the word of God, God's commandments. And it doesn't matter what topic we're talking about. We can look at it from a lens of God is our creator. He gave us these commandments. We are in relationship with him and everything that we do on this earth, you know, we can do it in service unto him. We can, we can see it in math, right? How God used math oh, yeah. to, in, 
it's all over the place. So that is a Christian classical education in my own words. Yeah. Oh, well, folks, we've probably got time for another question or two. If you want to call in, the number is 719-619-2341, 719-619-2341. John, I've got to tell you this story. I mentioned earlier in the program when I was in California and I was giving a series of assemblies in public schools and uh, was not able to speak in this one school because a fight broke out. Uh, it was very sad. Well, shortly after that, Here's the follow-up, folks. I was asked to judge a homeschool debate in Colorado Springs. So I left California and came to Colorado Springs. Well, uh, it was there were hundreds of homeschool families and kids, and they were doing like a, a two-day debate skills, rhetoric, public speaking debate, and I was uh, a, a panelist on the judging. And there were, there were middle school, but there were like fifth, sixth graders up through high schoolers. And there was Lincoln Douglas style debate and all these things. Well, I met a little boy. Um, I'm going to say he was a seventh grader at the oldest. And he and a, a, another boy were go going to debate, I don't know, something about the nature of ethics based on the teachings of Thomas Aquinas, which they had translated from the Latin. Now, just think about this. Um, and even though these were all Christian families, sometimes kids, you know, they drew and they had to debate a point they did or didn't agree with. But I was like, and I said to my wife, what a contrast. In California, I couldn't even speak because the public schools are too dangerous. Literally, this place where a fight broke out in a gym, you had to go through metal detectors to get in the, the school property. And I go from that, which, I mean, there was not a lot of learning taking place, to Colorado, where the Christian debaters and sixth and seventh graders are translating Thomas Aquinas from the Latin and debating the nature of ethics. And I thought, what group is going to have the more sufficient education to become leaders for God and country? Now, that's an extreme case, but John, my point is, I mean, if you look at what's going on and what are the fruits, it's clear um, parents, especially Christian parents, I mean, they're, they're just duty-bound to choose something for their kids other than this secular, godless public education. I agree. Yeah, and what you just described with that debate uh, with Latin you basically just described a classical style of education, right? Yeah. You know, where we're focusing on the greatest achievements of mankind and truth and beauty and virtue, you know, those are the focuses of a classical education. So like I mentioned earlier, we rarely see a shared value nowadays in society or in our school system. So if we could get back to, you know, sharing values, biblical values, that would go a long way. Um. How many hours a day, if a family decides to homeschool, like, like, do you start early in the day? How, how much of the day? Um, can you give us like an outlay of what that would look like? Yeah, so um, speaking from experience, being a part of the Masterbooks homeschool community, man, they have their own app, their own social media where they're constantly daily 
sharing ideas and helping each other. But um, families are different and they're all over the place. The good thing about homeschooling, the beauty of it is you can adapt it to suit your life, your family's life. If you have two parents, both of them work or one of them works or a single parent household, one of the good things about homeschooling is you can mold it to fit your lifestyle. Um, sorry, what was the other part of that question? How, well, how, can um, how many how many hours a day? Yeah. Speaking from my personal experience, when we were homeschooled, we started at the same time as the public school system around us. We started at 8 a.m. Normally, we were done, my three siblings and me, we were done by 10 a.m., two hours or less. You know, when you have a one to four teacher-student ratio, you can get a lot done in a little time, which, again, is another benefit of homeschooling. Um, but really, say you have say you have two parents and both of them have to work. Um, you have to sort out, you know, childcare kind of during the day, but you can homeschool in the evening. You can do it before yeah. dinner or after. Dinner. And the curriculum is up to you. You know, as parents, you can choose the curriculum, right? If you want to work in archery, if you want to have Bible as your curriculum, if you want to study Latin, like you just mentioned, all of these things are on the table for you as parents, right? And so as you're raising your children and you're watching them grow and evaluating their needs, you know, you can supplement with, any curriculum you want. So it's a beautiful thing. Well, let me ask you this. What, what do you know, John, about homeschool kids? Once they, you know, finish 11th or 12th grade, uh, what about their ability, should they choose to get into college? Um, based on the research that I've seen, they have, uh, the trend continues. I told you that homeschoolers outperform their private school, public school peers that continues beyond college. Um, often you'll hear that uh, employers want homeschooled children. Colleges yeah. look for those homeschooled children. One problem that homeschoolers might face if they're looking to go to a university is if that university is looking for an SAT or ACT score. Okay. Because if you were a homeschooled student, you might not have been studying what's in the SAT or ACT, those kind of, you know, that secular... Um, progressive education material. But one solution to that now, which is gaining popularity, is the CLT, which is a classic learning test. Florida actually just adopted this as an alternative to the SAT and ACT. It's called the CLT. I know I'm throwing a bunch of you know letters that, at you guys. This is awesome. Though. Yeah, but the classic learning test, it's basically like the SAT, but for students who had a classical education uh, whether that was homeschooling or in a private school and more colleges are now accepting that. So that's really exciting. You can learn about that. I believe you just Google CLT or, you know, classical classic learning test and you'll find out a bunch of information. Jeremy Tate, I believe created that just in like 2015. So it's a pretty new thing, but that's exciting. awesome. And, and, you yeah. know, there are tutorials. Um, when I went to graduate school, I had to take the GRE, the graduate record exam. And I went to the University of Virginia to take a course on how to take the GRE. And, uh, yeah. you know, this is a long time ago, but folks, now there are things online. The CLT or any of the, the prep for the entrance exams and um, you know, SAT, uh, look, there are ways. And like you say, and I know I've known a lot of college administrators and registrars and recruiters and uh, 
the, the fruits speak for themselves. The, the work ethic, the intellect, the knowledge base of the homeschool alums is so inspiring that, um, yes, if a child wants to go to college, they, they very likely will be able to get in. Hey, here's a great question. Um, says, what do you think about using programs like Karis Live Bible Study and Truth and Liberty as subject hours for kids? Uh, and there's a follow-up, but John, as you may or may not know, I mean, Karis uh, Bible College, which is world-class, and I teach in the School of Practical Government, and there's a business program, and there's biblical worldview, and there's uh, missions and ministry, and there's uh, drama, and there's a literally, you know, Broadway-quality drama department, and a lot of the Karis online uh, content is just world-class. And then there is Truth and Liberty, and my goodness, here on this very program, we've had elected officials, we've had PhDs, we've had scholars, historians, opinion makers, you name it. Here's my point. Could some of the online content being generated by this institution be used by parents to contribute toward the curriculum or uh, the requisite hours needed? Uh, and uh, can they factor in, you know, resources like what what is being broadcast from here. Yes, they can. And that's awesome. Now, again, every state is different. So you have to check with your state through that website I gave you, hslda.org. But yes, that's the beauty of homeschooling. Now, I think a lot of homeschoolers, especially new homeschoolers, fall into the trap of trying to recreate the public school model. You're right. If the parents went to a public school as a kid, they try to recreate the classroom setting. They try to recreate the subject areas. If that system isn't working, don't try to recreate it, right? You have Amen. the freedom. Amen. That's part of the beauty of homeschooling is you have freedom. Freedom. That's a wonderful thing as parents to educate your children. So you can supplement with any curriculum that you want. Um, you know, you can volunteer at a soup kitchen. You can tie anything that you're doing throughout your day. You're grocery shopping, right? You're counting, you're tallying up the price of, you know, cereal. You know, you can tie anything back into your curriculum. Oh, yeah. Everything you do throughout your day is education. You're educating your child. More importantly, yeah. you're discipling your child. You know, if you're talking about the commandments of God. So yes, you can do that and you should do that. That's awesome. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned like going to the grocery store and budgeting or, you know, reconciling yeah. the checkbook uh, and, you yeah. know, basic personal accounting, which involves math skills. I mean, there, there's just so much about life skills that can be passed along in the context of education, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think kids, from my experience, kids love that. I think I think really it's like parents... Parents don't want to be overbearing. They want to be like cool parents a lot of times. Not everybody, of course, but kids want that instruction. They don't want to grow up and not know how to balance a checkbook or not know how to budget. They don't want to be in that situation. So they want that. Uh, so provide that for them, you know? Amen. Well, the book, we're almost out of time. Uh, brother, you're an inspiration. And John, I just want to thank you so much. John Stamper is our guest, and the book is Conflicted pulling back the curtain on public education. Um, listen, I wish you the best. I, folks, I encourage you to read this book. 
and please recommend it to others. Uh, any final thoughts uh, as we run out of time for, for our first visit together, John? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the questions and the, uh, everyone's time, but if I could leave you with a final thought, I would just say that parents matter now more than ever. Parents yeah. matter now more than ever. That was the case in my life. You know, my parents made a decision to homeschool my siblings and me in the early 90s because of a, a lawsuit in our public schools over the Bible. My parents pulled wow. us out. And then 30 years later, when I was in a conflict, a spiritual conflict with Chicago public schools that I explained a little bit, I had that conflict, but I was able to look back at my parents' example, what they did and why they did it. They wanted to prioritize the word of God. They were young Christians. They were 32 years old, four kids, younger than I am right now. They were bold, right? They set the example. And thank God I had that to look back on. It made my trial, my conflict. I didn't know what to do. Should I stay? Should I go? I didn't know what to do. But having those godly examples of parents really gave me comfort. So parents today, be encouraged that, yeah, it's difficult. What you're going through is not easy, but what you do, what you do and why you do it will stick with your kids. Amen. And that should be an encouragement to you. Amen. For real. Hey, folks, tomorrow afternoon on the American Family Radio Network, two to three central time, I'll have Richard Harris on, attorney Richard Harris. We're going to be talking about Truth and Liberty, the Truth and Liberty Conference. In the meantime, John Stamper, thanks for being with us. The great crew of Truth and Liberty there in Woodland Park, Colorado, amazing as always. And you viewers and listeners, thanks for being with us tonight. Hey, share this with somebody. You can go to truthandliberty.net, share a link with somebody. Please pray. Please pray for the Truth and Liberty Conference, September 7 through 9. Join us if at all possible. It is free, but we ask that you register by going to truthandliberty.net. May God bless you. Thanks for watching. And may God bless the United States of America. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.